Didn't you give up juggling in high school? Because that whole magic thing, kind of geeky magic thing. Yeah. Did you actually buy your magic kit at the Disneyland Magic Store on Main Street? No. Do you remember that store? You weren't a big Disneyland kid. That's sad. Oh, did you buy your magic kit at the magic store at the Farmer's Market? Do you remember that store? No, I was a much more serious magician than that. So you bought your magic kit at the Magic Castle with a password to a speakeasy that you had to go down to for the children's store? That kind of thing? Yeah. Magic. When I when I remember you as a child, I remember you often, you would walk into a room, you would look around, and then you would do this. Magic. And do some kind of little shuffle. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> that that was you. You would walk into the room, you would say magic, and let with the jazz hands. That was so Josh High School. Oh my God, the jazz hands. Yeah, that was me. So you. <laughs> little known fact about Joshua Beckett. Jazz hands. Locks in the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com. The Not Dead is a very popular television show in, in Lithuania. I think it's the number one show in Lithuania. It's uh, it's based on Grey's Anatomy. In fact, I think it uses exact Grey's Anatomy scripts. But uh, that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's Lithuanian copyright law. Not legitimate. As far as I know. <laughs> well, it's legitimate in Lithuania. Yeah. They have different laws. Yeah, in Lithuania, where their motto is, if you don't like what we're doing, try and find me. <laughs> yeah, they have very liberal copyright law. Right. Very, or very liberal theft laws, I should yeah. say. Have you ever been to Lithuania on your many travels? Did you ever encounter the Lithuanian people? We, we summer there. We, the, which we are we talking about? <laughs> you and the Queen? or the, what the, are Be- the Becketts. The Becketts. The Becketts of Somerville. Anyway, I digress. Today, Unlocks in the Bagel, the podcast... Uh, I want to talk about your mother in the bath. No, I'm sorry. I can't get that out of my head now. <laughs> get your mother out of my bathtub. Seriously. She's dead. Just to clarify. Complete, your mother is completely. Dead. Oh, you know, it's funny. When I was when I was thinking about your mother the other day, just for fun, I just Googled her name. And there are so many great obituaries. One in the New York Times, of all places. You know about this, right? Of course you do. There's you one remember in the New York, York Times or? obituary? Really? I don't remember yeah, that. It's a beautiful written New York Times obituary. Obituary. Oh, no, I don't. I actually don't. I don't know if I saw that. I was going to send it to you, but then I thought it would be obnoxious for me to send you something that obviously you were aware of, or maybe you even wrote. I didn't want to be that obnoxious. And now apparently you, you may not even have been aware of it, or you might just be absent-minded or adult-minded, as they used to say in the in the 70s. What, when did that come out? Did that come out before she died? <laughs> the bitch war? Yeah, it came out in 1964. Was it, was it predictive in some way? It predated her death by 40 years. Because I don't remember years. seeing that. They're, re- they're really on top of it. At the it's funny because you were quoted in it too, which is even more amusing that you don't remember it. I tested out the Rodney Allen Rippy thing on uh, oh on on the Russian princess princess. She's who's she's at least ten years younger than I am. No, I think she's no she's sixteen years younger than I. Am. No yeah. idea. No idea who Rodney Allen. Rippey yeah. Why why would anybody unless they knew no. him and were friendly with him today? Yeah. Remember that cute little child from the seventies who who made us all smile and want to eat Jack in the Box. I mean, not you, but I did and. By the way, I, I did eat Jack in the Box. Not not really the burgers as a kid, but I ate the tacos as a kid. It's interesting. Each fast food place, and I know this is like speaking a foreign language to you, but each fast food place had a, had had one particular food that, that really grabbed m- my emotion. At Jack in the Box, it was the tacos without their taco sauce. So we just get the pure taste of the, the, the kangaroo meat, which they were found to have used in the 70s at one point. That's a true story. And the American <laughs> really? cheese quarters. Kangaroo meat? Yeah. 
Yeah, there was a whole scandal about that in the 70s or 80s. I think it was the 70s about them using kangaroo meat. Yeah, but, replacing... but in Australia, kangaroos are like chickens. Yeah, they're, I'm not saying they're, people they're, don't eat they're kangaroo meat. They're everywhere. And did anybody stop to just even for a second say, you know, but it, they're they're goddamn tasty. No, not in America. This is America. You forget the country that we're in, especially um, always. Uh, America believes that America knows best, always. And American beef is the only meat that most Americans are willing to eat um, even though Ted Turner bought Montana in the 80s and, and created uh, bison. Um, but anyway, that was an incredible invention he made in his living room, the bison burger. Okay, so I want to take us back to a time in our lives when the future looked bright and open, when the trees were shorter, mm-hmm. when hope sprung eternal. That time for all of us known as high school theater. You remember it? Mm. Sure. We, we we touched on that the other day when we were talking about John. We have touched on many things, and there are many Johns to touch on, by the way, in high school theater reference and memory. But first, I want you just, without thinking, tell me your best personal memory of high school theater. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. John Engel, our teacher, our teacher who, who shaped most of my work habits and uh, ethics as, a, as an actor. Yeah, John Ingle. Uh, he <clears throat> was like, uh, in many ways, he was like a father figure for me, uh, more than a theater teacher as he was for you, but because he, uh, he sort of was there for me in moments, emotional, personal moments when I, I didn't really have anywhere else to go. Uh, and sometimes he was very hard on me in ways that my father, who, you know, my father was the nicest man in the world and didn't know how to be hard, uh, just wasn't in his toolbox, if you will. But John Engel could be hard on me, not in a mean way, but in a sort of take responsibility for yourself kind of way that my father didn't know how to do. That's interesting because I have a me- there was a memory. The worst, I would say the worst moment I had in high school and the worst moment I probably had in my life in some ways, academic, well, let's keep it to high school because there were other bad moments. But the worst moment I had in high school was when I found out that I was going to fail a class because I just didn't go, because I stopped going to this class for a few months because I was having other issues at home and I just didn't feel like going to this class. So it wasn't because I didn't know understand the material. In fact, it was a class I loved, history. I was either going to get a D or an F because I only went for the test and I, I didn't know the material. So that's a problem. So John Ingle, who the teacher of the history class who knew that I was a big theater kid, uh, told John Ingle and John Ingle in the backstage, I think it was at Oklahoma the spring musical in 10th grade, which you weren't in, as I recall, right? You didn't audition for that. Right. 10th grade. There was It was me, Jason, and Evan. I think we were the only 10th graders in that musical, if I recall. But I could be wrong. But anyway, I digress. So, so I was backstage just about to go on for a performance. And this was 10th grade. I was in the chorus. I was partnered with Janet Kurtzman, who be, later became Janet Lawner, infamously. Talk about that another time. But anyway, I was partnered with Janet Kurtzman, who who is just the sweetest. Do you remember Janet Kurtzman? She was no. a year older than us. She was friends with Ellen um, Ginsberg. Oh, uh, no. No, Ellen Ginsberg. They were very good friends. But Janet Kurtzman was like the nicest young woman in the world. I just, my memories of her, was she was incredibly sweet, kind. She was very, just a lovely uh, young woman. That's my memory. I didn't know her that well. But anyway, and she lived on, uh, on, on I'm not going to say where she lived because her parents might still live there. So anyway, but anyway she lived in this beautiful street down the block from Adam Kastner. But that's another story. Anyway, for anybody we went to Grammar School High School with, they'll know those names. For the rest of you, ah, it's just amusing uh, backstory. So anyway, Janet, so I was about to go on stage and do this little dancey Oklahoma number with Janet Kurtzman when Mr. Ingle walked up and in my ear, as I'm about to go on stage, he says, you failed history. <laughs> literally in the moment just as I'm about to go on stage what, what are your what, what's your reaction to that <laughs> that seems ill-timed well it's interesting because i took it i took it actually to be this very loving thing that he was first of all he was trying to say to me like 
you know, as he always did, like when you go on stage, you just block everything else out and you just do it. You just do the work, right? You focus on what you're on the thing you're in, well, no matter what else is going on. Maybe if he wants you to block out that you failed history, don't tell me that I failed history right before I go on stage. I don't know. He knew I had, I had actually spent a lot of time that year talking to him after school, just sitting with him alone after school and having conversations about a lot of the struggles and the loneliness I was experiencing. And, and uh, he, uh, he was just like, he was like this father figure to me. And he was, you know, the kind of tougher love father that I didn't have at home. And I, I actually appreciated that moment. Yeah. By the way, I took that history class in summer school and I got an A in it. I got uh, basically at 100% on every test. Yeah, I think this so is not the really third sure. time you've mentioned that A in 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 this show over over the last Wow, that's six, really six attacking times. my pain points. I appreciate yeah, that. Thank I you. Think, yeah. Are you a therapist by trade or an <laughs> auto mechanic? How does that work in your life? Uh, it's nice you with your happy I can't, life. you know, it's so interesting that you never to my memory, you know, you you, you never one time said I I got all these issues at home. I'm struggling. I'm in pain. You never shared that with me. No, I didn't. How would I have how would I have even known that was okay when I was a 15 and 16 year old boy in the culture in which we were raised that it was okay first of all that it was okay to even have those problems and second of all it was okay to talk to anybody about them I mean miss I only talked to Mr. Ingle about them I guess because I, f I felt like he was an authority figure who felt safe to me in a way. And because theater was the safe, the place was the only place really in the world I felt, you know, safe and uh, accepted in some ways, even though it was not for who I actually was. But anyway, it was enough at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to look back on if you want to look at it from a psychological perspective. I, didn't I just feel I feel bad. I, just, I mean, you should feel bad. It was mostly your fault. <laughs> oh, uh, then I feel really bad. It was your fault. You never brought that. You never drew me out. You never, you know, inquired. You just let, you just took it all at surface value. That's yeah. So I, I never, I never said everything. Okay. at home. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about it. And you never, you never offered me like a hot fudge Sunday and said, tell me about all the pain you're going through mm -hmm. and the loneliness and the fear mm -hmm. and the sadness and the, uh, the neglect. Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. <laughs> you didn't I say did. that as a 15 or 16 year old boy. What was wrong with you? You I, didn't know you'd become a therapist. I was not, I was not very mature. Yeah, that was the problem. Yeah. You were so childish. You were you were the the most. That was my, of my reputation. Friends, yeah, I was the I least. Was, you mature. were like I was the most the least childish. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You like to hang out with the little kids. Mm -hmm. You didn't like adult conversation. Yep. You had a terrible vocabulary. That was me. <laughs> you spoke in in like paste and you ate paste in the corner a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! The funny thing about Joshua, for those of you who don't know, is he was like a forty-year-old man when he was nine. Yeah, he was so mature, and he was treated like an adult by his parents. So he he grew up in an adult world. He lived as an adult in many ways. It's interesting. Oh my god! So yeah, he was the least childish person I knew when I knew him, uh, and that was good in many ways. I've I've worked though to cultivate that the the childlikeness. Yeah, I have. I, I'm I'm quite silly in a way that I never was when I was uh, in in high school. Yeah, that's growth, and uh, you have a child, so that's also helpful to have a child and not be a forty-year-old man and emotionally in that way. That well, listen, sad. I would kill to be a forty-year-old man again. Now, <laughs> I know. So. I meant that metaphorically, but yes, you know what I mean. Um, but let's go back to high school theater. So John Ingle, yeah, he was great. So, but tell me about like the the best performing moment you had because you had a you were a really talented actor. I mean, let's be honest, you were one of the best actors in high school. So, tell me about a moment that stays with that stays with you that, of performance that you were just you felt so good or you felt so accomplished or something. Because mm. I have moments about you, but mm. I want to hear if you have a moment about you. 
I don't know. You know, I, I have I have a lot of those. Honestly, pick one. Oh man, I mean, we're doing a show here. Pick do, one. Doing doing yeah. flowers for Algernon in the in the drama festival. Okay, so don't just gloss over it. Okay, tell tell us about that role. Tell a little bit about that experience. Tell tell me. We want to know about the experience. Well, tell I was so I, I was in ninth grade, right? Wasn't I? It was ninth. Was that grade. ninth grade or tenth grade? No. That was junior. That was junior drama festival. That was yeah. So uh, that would have been a, that would have been. Nice. we traveled. Yeah, we did. Would've... We took plays and we cut like nine minute scenes out of them, mm-hmm. and then we performed them in a festival in competition with other schools. I think that would have been ninth or tenth grade. Yeah, it, it but was, I pr- think it was ninth. Yeah, it might have been ninth grade junior drama festival. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I don't I didn't know it at the time that I was doing it, but it was it's the role that Cliff Robertson did in, mm-hmm. in the film. Co- brilliant in the film uh, called Charlie. But anyway, right. that's right. So Charlie, that's the name of the character, and he he, I think my memory is right. He is he is a, a mentally disabled. Yeah, he's a very low IQ. Adult. He starts. He, they do some research. They give him some kind of treatment that actually mm-hmm. changes his IQ. Some kind of science. His IQ or something, yeah. And becomes so brilliant. He, he becomes quite brilliant. And then, but it doesn't last. And he goes right. back Fate. to, yeah. yeah. And, and so you did that. That's a challenging role for a 15-year-old, 14-year-old. And your group won first place, right? Uh-huh, we did. In the Southern California Drama Festival. Yeah. It was a big deal. It was a big deal back then, yeah. So I was very proud of that. And was that was that the first role that sort of said to you like God I really want to do this like, I think I love I th- being an actor I, th- I, I not only that I love being an actor but that, that I was good at it yeah because that was that's high praise be, get, getting first uh, winning first prize in the Southern California Festival that was it a was. huge deal it was do you remember who that's that was you know so that was you know high school all these high schools competed and there were individuals who who did monologues right. and then there were groups mm-hmm. that did scenes and and basically like and then you know everybody would gather at the you'd see all these other schools and competitors in the hallways. It was very exciting. And then, yeah, you'd gather in the auditorium and they'd announce, you know, and judges would watch and then score it. And there would be rounds and you would progress and you'd go and race to the hall and see who, if you made it to the next round. Right, if you made it to the next round. And you'd spend all day there. I mean, all of this is coming back. It was a huge, huge, exciting and incredibly fun communal experience with friends. Yeah. And uh, it was always our school and I think Pally. Lost Virginis. In the in the West Valley was very successful. I don't remember that, but I remember PV right. Palace Verdes. P- P- yeah, PV was very was very yeah. competitive. Las Virgenes, Palace Verdes, and, and the high school we went to were yeah. all very competitive, very competitive, very successful. Feels like we and 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 PV were uh, always yeah uh, sort of com- vying for mm-hmm. the one and two spots. Do you um, remember your your co stars in that production? Do you remember Jennifer, uh, don't tell me her last name. I can see her so clearly. You know who? Carlin. Haha. I remember uh-huh. Jennifer Carlin. Jennifer Carlin was in that, and I don't remember who else was in that. Jennifer Carlin had incredible eyes. Just remember, she had like this very deep, I don't know if you remember this, but she had like these deep and penetrating, powerful, very powerful eyes. Uh, I haven't seen her since high school, but that's I don't, my memory I'm, of her. I don't remember that. Deep, powerful eyes. All right, just that. me. It could have been yeah. me. She might have just looked right through me one day. I don't know. Don't remember that. But very powerful. And and who else besides Jennifer Carlin? No I, no, I don't. Do you remember who directed that? Because we had an older student generally direct the younger students. Well, no, Nancy directed that. She Nancy, the teacher. Yeah, Nancy directed that. One of our three drama teachers. Yeah, Nancy Raiden, right? Yeah, who later became Nancy Fishman. 
right? Nancy Raiden, who became Nancy Fishman, or Nancy Fishman, who became Nancy Raiden? No, Nancy Raiden, and she became uh, Nancy This is Raiden. what I know. The pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle, the chalice from the palace is the brew that is true. Someone's broken the chalice of the palace. They've replaced it with a flagon with a figure of a dragon. Right. Now, the flagon with the dragon has the brew that is true. Correct. Well said. So anyway, so that was, so then we did, uh, we also, there was drama festival in the spring and there was Shakespeare festival in the fall or r- vice versa. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, and the Shakespeare festival, you did an individual performance, if I recall. No, I always did group. I did. And I did Richard. I you did I Richard did, the third. That was group. That was group. That was group. I was also great. Oh, you know what's funny? My memory is you did that at like a, we did this, there was this lunchtime thing where students did scenes from their oh, stuff, but mm. you did a scene, you did that scene. Mm. The only way to make the wench amends is to become, become a husband, husband and a father. father. Yeah. Yeah. You did that scene in that lunch thing. So my memory of the Richard the Third was that was an individual performance, but you, that was a group. Yeah, that was a group. I didn't remember that. I mean, the important the, the thing for me is that and I, I still feel this way. It's like that was when I discovered, like, oh, I have this is something I have a gift for. This is what it means when you when you feel like, oh, this is a this is a gift I have. This is something mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm when people talk about something I'm meant to do. And mm-hmm. I, I never, I never looked back from that. And that was powerful. I mean, m- most people don't know what they're meant to do at that age, I think. And, and I did and felt lucky. I mean, I, st- I started high school wanting to be a veterinarian. That's what I, Wait, so you have this idea that people are born with abilities that they're meant to do. Like that's an idea that you believe like they're meant to do it. Like you were meant by what? By powers well, no, it's a, by it's a God? Tur- no, by- no, it's a turn. No, it's just a, it's just a turn of phrase that means you you have a, a powerful urge. Okay, and, so and, something and you love, something, something you that good yeah, at, something that makes you feel like you belong. You know, it's so not like you, an ordained. No, no, it gives you a sense of meaning and belonging, okay. and like I am. You know, I I I think everybody has some. I'm using the word gift, but it might be like a mechanical gift, or a gift for plumbing, or a gift for sewing, or whatever. And I just and sometimes you get to do that for work, and sometimes you do that as just a thing you do because you love doing it, and has nothing to All do right. with work. And I felt like, oh, I could do both of these things so don't you think that there people have more than one thing that they relate to on the, that level i mean I, my experience is that there's always more than one thing people just don't are not always aware of it because they're not given the opportunity to engage in that thing or even to know that they're they love it but i'm i'm talking about something that's very like at a very profound level like this thing comes very naturally to me and i can build on it and it's it's fulfilling and i have a i'm ta- i have a talent and a gift for it and it's something that i you know can grow is it possible that people have more than one of those sure of course it is i don't know if everybody ha- if everybody has more than one of those but it sure. feels akin to me it's like the notion of a soulmate like that's the analogy i make and what it, what i what i get from it because it feels like like most people have this idea, mostly because of pop culture and and you know stuff they've been they've been given this idea that there's a soulmate for all of us. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there are there. I like the idea of the soulmate, meaning somebody you really feel connected mm-hmm. to and feel that you were meant to be with. Yeah. But I think that that there can be there always are more than one. I think again, that's a construction of the idea that there's one person we're meant to be with, as opposed to there are many people out there that we could be meant to be with, that we could feel that way about if we meet them. Mm-hmm. The same idea for me with with talent and ability. I think often that we're just not given a chance, or we we're not supported by our parents or the culture we live in to see that there are things that we can feel that way about. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've often wondered about like you know what about a human being who's never been 
handed a tennis racket, never been handed mm-hmm. a basketball, who may yeah. possess within them, you know, the potential to be the greatest fill in the blank that the world's right. ever seen. Well, what I mean, about that's you? my point. What about you? Have you ever felt like there's one thing that you were really meant to do, so to speak? Like, well, this is in, this is interesting because this is going to actually speak to the, the the thing that was in my head just now when I was brought that up to you. This idea that that we there are reasons why somebody's not given a tennis racket or somebody is feels good at something but feels like I can't do this because culturally I've been taught that maybe as a man this is not something I'm supposed to do or there's no support for it and or there are economic issues or socioeconomic issues race issues that often come up that why people are may have the talent you're describing in a particular area because of their family because of the culture because things culture, they may try it sure. they may feel connected to it and yet they don't have the opportunity to pursue it for all those reasons which is kind of like the tragedy of our culture all the judgments and stuff. For me, like the thing that I've felt in my life most what you what you're describing about acting, most connected to, most good at, most enriched by is working with children. When I have worked with children, whether in a preschool setting, which I've done in the past, mm-hmm. or one-on-one as a parent, or one-on-one as a nanny, or one-on-one in many settings or in many group settings, schools that I've been in over the years, I've always felt that that was the thing that felt most meaningful to me and that I was incredibly good at. Right. I was able to connect with children. I was able to f- hear them and see them and and feel the sort of pain or or struggle that they are going through and be able to talk to that in a way that was non-judgmental and 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 supportive in mm-hmm. ways that a lot of the children, at least I have worked with over the years, had never heard a man, especially talk that way. Yeah, I mean that yeah. was my experience. Often, yeah, you're so often you're, you're amazing with kids. Uh, you know, you're obviously I trusted my child with you. Right, but here's the rub about that. So I've spent a lot of my life working with children. There's no money in it. I wasn't able to save any or invest any any time I've worked with children. I spent every single dollar I made to just survive. You know, it's in, and this is one of the problems with what what I was just saying. Like that was something I I would have if there had been a, an avenue for that. When I I learned this when I was a kid, by the way, I worked at a summer camp, a, a sports camp, a daily camp in Rancho Park. I was a, a CIT when I was like 12 years old and I knew instantly, like, wow, this is the first time I've ever felt this way. Um, but there was, but nobody supported that as a career. Nobody I knew said that this is meaningful for you as a boy, especially in those days. Like this is not a career. This is just something you do for fun every once in a while. And that's great. But now you need to grow up. I mean, that was the language around working with kids for me. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was it was very frustrating and problematic because then also was what you're talking about earlier, right? Like, why didn't you tell me that you were in all this pain when we were kids? Well, because I learned from every adult I knew that like certain things weren't OK for me as a boy, which is fucked up and sad. And maybe it's not as true today, although it's still somewhat true. Let's be honest. It's not completely open as we'd like to think it is today for people to do whatever they want. But um, I mean, I love being a CIT at that camp. I love working with the little kids. I love seeing a kid who felt alone or by himself or, or by herself or without maybe being it, their ability to connect and going and sitting with that kid and watching that child light up and smile in the conversation and just feel, feeling seen and heard. I mean, again, that comes out of my own experience, obviously, of never feeling seen or heard. But I, I understood that. I mean, not intellectually, but I understood that viscerally and emotionally at 12. And I was able to bring that to other children throughout my life. Um, but there hasn't really been a lot of support for that for me in my life. I yeah. mean, it's been the opposite, actually. Yeah. A lot of judgment when I did that by lots of people. Yeah. So 
that's a double-edged sword for me. It's the thing I always loved, and it's the thing always made me feel bad culturally and socially and familial. I mean, in my own family too. People when you thought, oh, when you were running your own business with Cheryl, is that the is that how it was? Oh, that was greeted? different because the word business was in that. That was different because when I we ran the children's art center and gym, I was running a business. The it wasn't I wasn't working with kids per se, you know I was running a business, mm. so that was seen as totally socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I loved most about that business was sitting and talking with moms and kids. I mean that was the thing I loved most is really hearing people's experiences, and being able to share with them meaning, and you know that was beautiful. But yeah, so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing, right? Like acting, if you're good at it. Um, and you're successful at it, you can make millions and millions of dollars and be lauded and celebrated culturally. And and you were for a while professionally. And we went to high school. High, our high school theater department produced a lot of kids who became rich and famous, and mm-hmm. they're still lauded. But you know, working with kids for a man is seen at, in in those days was seen with suspicion. By the way, in the '80s, by the way, if you remember, there were all those scandals about men and preschools and and abuse, and so you were seen with suspicion if you liked working with kids and you were a man. It was really a problem. I had to stop. Literally, I couldn't take kids to the bathroom when I was in college working at a preschool because of those scandals. I had to stop like taking kids to the bathroom by myself because you just couldn't do it. It was too dangerous. I mean, that was horrible. I mean, understandable as a parent, of course, I understand that fear. Yeah, but it's hor- but it's horrible. So anyway, let's go back to high school theater. That was very deep. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So here, well, but, 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 but high school theater for me is connected to the emergence yeah. of the discovery no, no, of the thing that I I felt like I was supposed to be doing. Like it was. Yeah. You know. No, I, I get that, and I think that's amazing for you. And I and I've see, I saw that, and and that was great. Um, but I want to talk more about the experience of actually what it's like to be a high school student in theater and to. And like for me, the experience was the first time in life that I had an understanding of collaboration and of group and of a group dynamic that felt meaningful. Yeah, and you know, and personal. It, yeah, and it's interesting because I think there are some parallels with um, like athletics in high school, or, mm-hmm. you know, very much athletics. So. And I think that there, so I, th- I think there's some things some. that are, are very similar, and I think there's some things that are very, very different. Yeah, and I suspect that it's changing these days, but I don't know because my kid isn't in any, um, you know, athletic yeah, programs right now. I think I was a very naturally affectionate kid anyway. But mm-hmm, when you, when too. you are, when you are in a theater department, you know, I mean, it's just all about, and then of course going into college. And I, I mean, my whole life for eight years was nothing but just like school theater departments. Right. You know, you, it, it, it supports and, and encourages just you know, uh, the expression of um, feeling, the expression mm-hmm. of felt experience, the paying attention to of uh, feeling and inner, you know, inner life and the physical uh, expression of uh, emotion and, and affection. You know, people in theater departments by and large, I'm generalizing obviously, but they're, they're, they are constantly, you know, holding each other and hugging. And, you know, it's a very, very affectionate environment by and large. They're very yeah. emotive, you know, people. That's why they end up in, in theater departments. Um, and at least when we were in high school, that's where the similarity ends, right? There's this, there's the, the, the similarities of 
a, a collaborative experience, working together towards a common goal. You know, in, in, in the theater department, you did different jobs. You, if you were, you were acting, but you also learned how to do the uh, techie stuff. And, and, you know, but if you were certainly, if you were a boy when we were in school, uh, and you were in uh, athletics, you, you, that part of that program was not okay. Now talk about your feelings. Yeah. Although let's be honest, you were never in athletics. Well, neither was oh, I. Well, I, I, I wasn't, I feel I'm on pretty safe ground. In, in this. <laughs> you, you don't think that in the, in the basketball locker room after the game that the boys sat around, you know, in their underwear and their no shirts and talked about their feelings. Pretty sure they didn't. <laughs> pretty sure. All right, fair enough. But, uh, but I will say this. Um, yeah, I agree with you completely. There was so much affection and there was so much, there was a sense, again, for me, there was such a sense of family. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was also why I was not a good actor. Pro- it was problematic for me, again, with the, the sadness of my story. But it was problematic because I, I was sort of living a, a, a duality. I was living two different lives. Mm. I had the life at home, and but I didn't bring that honestly and authentically into the work. I couldn't. I didn't know how. Mm-hmm. I was too ashamed of that. So so I brought a false character into the work. So I was seen as you know funny and charming, and I was good with the physical stuff. I was good with the mirrors and the touching, and because that felt real to me. I always in those days I always used to say like I don't believe words, even though words was my were my life, right? And I, I survived on words, but I didn't believe people's words because they didn't. They always rang hollow to me. But touch was something that you couldn't fake. For me touch was the most authentic form of communication because it felt it was real that's how i perceived it in those days especially and so that's what felt so good about theater was all that touch all that connecting touch felt like connection in ways that the other stuff didn't for me even though words was what i was known for and wit and humor and all of the stuff that i was known for that was all a facade in some ways Mm -hmm. not completely but it was how i survived but the touching and the connecting and all those exercises that I remember from those classes, you know, where you're on the floor and you're rolling around and you're you're looking into each other's eyes and you're putting hands on each other. I mean, that was such power. That was such a powerful sense of of connection. And for me, that felt like like belonging oh, in a way that sure. I didn't experience outside of that. For sure. Uh, and that's why I miss that. I've I've missed that my whole life. I mean, I've done a lot of different things. I've been in a lot of different kind of worlds in my adult life, and I I think very few, if any of them, have ever touched the sense of no pun intended have ever touched the sense of connection Mm -hmm. that comes that came from those rehearsal rooms for me in high school for you high school and college and later but for me it was just high school yeah and that for me was the best part of childhood yeah by far yeah were those rehearsals Uh, performances scared the hell out of me because i didn't think i was very good because again I, i couldn't access my emotions in an authentic way so i was afraid of performance i did it i performed in many shows on stage in front of people and i was terrified every single time like horrifically terrified, but I did it anyway. But rehearsal is the is the place I have the best memory mm-hmm. of just the laughing and the being together and feeling part of something. Yeah, feeling part of something. It was so powerful. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know this, I'm not suggesting that people who play sports don't feel connected to their teammates or-, or You hate people who play sports, you, no, you I, athletic you know, hater. Or, you know, I'm, I'm just talking about that sort of, you know, whether they don't feel profound emotions or they don't feel close to them. They do, and them. they feel profound connection. And by the way, when you Absolutely. listen to adult athletes talk about, talk about being, I mean, Tiger Woods, for all his faults, talks about this a lot. When he was out in injury, he talks about missing being with the fellas, missing the camaraderie and the connection. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't talk about it in terms of emotion the way we talk about it, and it probably wasn't the same way. But for him and for most great, most athletes, there was a sense, from I've heard these stories, of the connection 
it's analogous. It's similar in some ways. There was a deep sense of belonging and feeling con connected and accepted. It's yeah. very powerful, those group experiences, right. even if it wasn't as emotional or as physical in the same ways we're describing. It's very physical in a different way, Yeah, but the way we're describing. So, yeah, yeah. I don't want to diminish that, but I, I think it's problematic also for boys. In many for, especially for boys. I, I'm just saying that that was not part of the what was emphasized. I'm not saying yeah, it didn't. Exactly. I'm not saying it didn't happen. But it's not wasn't like part of the program where like th this is part of why you do this is to tap into the, the your felt experience, you know. Yeah. That's just yeah. So do you remember? Mm -hmm. um, I think we've mentioned this before in the podcast, but it has to be mentioned again for those of you who don't know the story because I think it's the best story of the best theater story from our high school, one of many. But the I don't know if those of you who have been in, in a play ever in your life. Have you ever been on stage at whatever level, from the professional down to you know dinner community theater in in Sheboygan, wherever that is? <laughs> that's that's a reference that was used like in fifties and sixties movies. I'm not sure where it is, but anyway, it's a place somewhere in America. But uh, do you ever have the experience <laughs> where you're on stage and somebody is about to deliver a line and they skip like thirty pages of dialogue and just start doing a scene from the second act? when you're in the first act. Have you ever felt the terror of being on stage? And in my case, have you ever been downstage, the most downstage, closest to the audience in a little theater where you're literally three feet from an audience member and you're sitting down and you're holding a cane and you're sitting on a bench in a big dramatic courtroom scene and the main actor in the stage skips like 30 pages of dialogue. Now, has that, yeah, has that ever happened scene. to you? For any of you listening, never have, you ever, have you ever been standing downstage <laughs> holding a cane, sitting on a bench? Wouldn't that be <laughs> amusing if that were a true story? Wait, it is a true story. So tell me your memory. of You were on stage, right? Oh, my God. Moment, I, I remember this. I remember. I know exactly the story you, you mean. Tell, tell the story. Marsh, Marsh Monroe. It was, it was the Crucible. Marsh Monroe was playing the judge. I think his name is Danforth. Uh-huh. Judge Danforth. And he is uh, on stage. Mark Kaplan is on stage with us oh mark wait Ka before mark, we go on mark, with this story yeah. wait stop for a second i have to interject mark kaplan for those of you who don't know mark kaplan is another one of these people who in high school was a grown-up mark kaplan was so far ahead of his time and so far ahead of his years he was like a 40 he was like no, a 50 year old he, man he was like an 80 year old man in high school <laughs> if i was right. like a 40 year old man he was like an 80 year old <laughs> yeah but i mean that in an affectionate way mark yeah. kaplan was so on top of his shit he was like a he was like a person that had been in the theater for his whole life and he was you know 17 but he felt like he'd been in the theater his whole life i don't know how he had that much knowledge and gravitas in that context i don't remember but that mark he had kaplan, gravitas but i remember that he was, he was gravitas in the sense that he was he was like a theater encyclopedia to me. I mean, he, and he just knew everything yeah, about the was, theater. He was very immersed in it. And he, he was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you could see him like with a scotch and a cigarette and, you exactly. know, in high school and just like, I remember Mark when Kaplan. Merman played the, you know. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. He was just like, he was an interesting character. Yeah. Very nice guy. He went to Sarah Lawrence, as I recall, yeah, afterwards. Yeah, and then yeah. when he works for Technicolor or something like Technicolor. Something I've seen like him that, on yeah. Facebook or somewhere. I don't know. I haven't seen him in 40 or 30, 40 years, but he was, he was so ahead of his time. Okay. So tell his the motto, story. His Bronze motto, is, always stay in touch because you never know. <laughs> You um, never know. That's what I remember too. You but, never know. Um, Just yeah. He who ended up saving, he saved that. Saved the show. Saved that show. Single-handedly that, 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 that Tell day. the story. Yes. Well, he, well, he whatever. Marshman rose up there and, and there's a, a, a scene in which 
the um, the three th- three young girls who uh, witches who have been accused of being witches or who are going to or trying to convince people they're not witches and they're going to throw their friend under the bus are basically going to be called in to testify, but not for like ten or fifteen pages. And they are backstage. They're getting dressed. They're getting in <laughs> costume. And Marsh Monroe as Dan, Dan Forth calls for the girls early calls from like to like 20, 15 20 maybe you're right maybe 30 pages early i don't know just more dramatic but just anyway he, he calls for them and everybody's like frozen frozen and so and 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 somebody goes off stage it might have been mark and he goes and he's and and i've in hearing about this after he's like he's calling for the girls he's calling for the girls calling we're not ready we're not ready and he comes back and he says, the girls aren't ready, sir. <laughs> but and, wait, let me ask you a question. And, and wait, wait, stop, wait, stop, wait, wait, no, stop, stop in this moment. I want to, I want to dissect a moment for a second. How long, how many, cause it feels to me like that, what you just described that 10 seconds was an hour, but how long do you think it actually took for that? Who for someone to realize that we had skipped and to actually take action to make it, to, to make it okay. I don't, I, I, don't, how long? I, don't I don't remember. But he comes back. I think I don't think it was it was Mark. I think it was someone else. Mark was still on stage, and it's funny because Mark uh, was was playing. Um, what's, that, what's that character's name? Um, I don't remember. I'll, it might come to me, but anyway, he's he's the guy who ends up getting crushed by a stone. And I think Excellent. in the I think in the play, you know, he's really supposed to be kind of this unshakable big man you know mm-hmm. that you can't imagine ever being <laughs> being felled by anything you know and mark is mark a high school not big. no he was he i think he played him as kind of this feeble uh character which worked for mark in in that show so Choice. anyway yeah so i think somebody else goes off and comes back and says the girls aren't ready sir and and marsh goes after a beat none of them <laughs> that was awesome <laughs> so like no, sir. <laughs> and that is then when Mark Kaplan just takes it upon himself and he just starts, he just skips ahead and he just starts doing, doing. Didn't he start doing other people's yeah. lines? No, like he, he knew just, the play. He, he just, he just, no, no. he just carried on. He just brought us to another part in the play and right. started but doing. But I'm saying like my memory is that he did other people. He did lines that, uh, that brought us to where we needed to go. He did lines he, that brought us where we needed to go, but I don't think they were other people's lines. I think, I think they were just, actually. I think he no, just no. jumped in with his lines. No, no. I think he, road. I think you're wrong. I'm just going to say like, this is you how memory of impacts people. Yeah, but my have. memory is that he did other people's lines. He, my, this is again, the Mark Kaplan encyclopedia. He knew the play so well. He literally could do anybody's lines. He might That's have. my memory. And so he, Mark Kaplan just all of a sudden sort of on his own improvising, just gets up and starts shape, shaping the play, he might back, moving it he might like have. a river, he might bending have. it to his will well, to where we need to get to. Now, do you remember? So I played Reverend Hale. Reverend Hale. You actually weren't originally cast That's as right. Reverend Hale. Do you Hale. remember who originally was cast as Reverend Hale? Yeah. Crispin Glover. That's correct. Of uh, Back to the Future fame. That and right. who was a good friend of mine for a short period of time and wore the most amazing 1940 suits in high school that yeah. his father wore in the filming of the movie Chinatown. His father was an actor in Chinatown. Yeah. Anyway, side note. Yeah. Crispin Glover. And then he got cast as like in a TV show or a pilot or something exactly, and exactly. left and you were brought in. That's right. As a, as a pinch hitter, young, younger, usually a year younger than anybody usually gets cast in a role like that in right. our school. Right. Right. Uh, and you had to take over as a big, big, big role. That was right. And who played, Pivotal. and who played John Proctor? 
Nicholas Coppola, who later changed his name to become Nicholas Cage. Right. That's and right. lose a testicle. And the fu- no, he did, no, he did not. He did not lose That's a testicle. That's a false story. I just heard that story somewhere. And maybe it's made up. Who knows? Really? Some people say it's true. I've never heard Some that. Some people don't. You never heard about the Nick Cage losing a testicle <clears throat> in Louisiana? No. I think we talked about this a, a couple weeks ago on the podcast. No, I don't remember. Anyway, who knows if it's true? Um, and the, the funny thing is in the middle of... of rehearsing that show so we had the director, oh my god are you gonna the, tell the, the director you'll never be that yeah, big yeah yeah the director, oh, that's my other favorite the, the director was a guy named andy <laughs> and and you know i want to go into his that whole thing with him but but he was very influential uh to a lot of us at the time i loved and andy he was uh you know he was sort of the the anti mr ingle had, very different. He had long hair, you know, wore jeans and mm, very casual. Everybody very called blonde. him everybody called him Andy and he was mm-hmm. you know kind of intense in a t- in a different way than than very you know. different. Yeah. But but very good as a high school theater. Yeah, he was more of like the James Dean of of That's right. Of, but he really the, connected. He really made you feel you know that you mattered. Yeah. And yeah, right. And Nick was backstage and he missed his entrance and he was he came on and he, just as a joke we were, it was it was a it was a run through might, might have been a dress rehearsal but it certainly was a run through mm-hmm. um and the judge asks him to introduce to say his name and he says john and his Sh- wife's name and his wife's name and he says john Schmuck. tell him what the regular line is tell it's him what the regular john line proctor is. your honor elizabeth proctor is my wife and he says right. john schmuck your honor elizabeth schmuck is my wife that's right, and right in the middle of the and show. Wait, just before you just uh, the little theater was a was a was a what's the word for that kind of jet out thing? I can't remember. There's a term yeah, for it. It was a. It, it's a. Um, There's an actual term. Yeah, there, it was thrust, a stage. A thrust stage. Was a thrust a thrust stage, and the yeah. seats went up. And then uh, in the back of the theater, behind the last row of seats, there was a booth with a lighting booth. And so Nicholas utters that line. He yeah. says, "I'm John Schmuck. This is my wife, Elizabeth." And all of a sudden, Andy, like a tornado, Andy is my comes memory out of the booth, and he flying out of the booth. Out he was not booth. tall. Yeah. He was a little man. Came flying, flying out of the booth like of a booth. tornado, yeah. and he screams. And and those of us who are remember what the, he said, of course. And yeah. those of us who are who are not in the scene at that point, we were just in the in the house watching. Yeah. And Andy comes flying, and he goes, "You'll never be that be that big, Coppola. Never." With his finger yep. pointing. Yep. Cut to six like months. Spit later. coming yeah. out of his yeah. mouth. Cut to six months later, and Valley Girl, Valley, Girl. Valley Girl comes out. <laughs> Nick Nick did actually become that big. And he did uh, become uh, that strangely. big. Yeah. But yeah, that that visual and that the intense. I have such a vivid memory of literally. That's why I described it like a tornado. Like I just remember the line, and then all of a sudden you heard a loud noise as if something had fallen off a shelf, and Andy comes flying out of the booth and he's screaming at the top of his lungs at the top of that theater. Mm. He'll never be that big Coppola. No. Oh my God! Such a great, great moment in high school theater. High school yeah. theater, man. It was big. It was. I, I would, it was I would imagine so in a way that that people who are, you know, in whatever the athletic department talk about how important college sports was to them. You know? Yeah. I, I, you know, it's interesting. Another, another weird quirky story about high school theater was we, you and I went on a trip to New York. You went two years and I went one year, our junior years. We went on this theater trip, a lot of high school theaters from all around the country do this trip to New York to see Broadway shows and to get together. And they go to New York for a week of theater. It's an amazing trip. And it is juniors. Joshua and I went together. There was, a couple of people from a couple of different schools were selected to do scenes in front of Broadway actress Sandy Dennis. I remember that. Did you do a scene? 
You did a scene, right? I, I, I think you did I a scene because you were scene, in that room. I might have done a scene with Mandy. Mandy Sutton, who was also like th- an older person in high school theater, Mandy had Sutton. knowledge way yeah. beyond her years. Her dad was Frank Frank Sutton, right? Was yeah, that his name? Uh, but I don't remember. Yeah, actor, actor. Mandy, Mandy had also knowledge way beyond her years. She also felt like someone who'd been in theater for her whole life. Yeah. But anyway, so so some people were chosen. I wasn't in that room. I wasn't chosen. I didn't go. I don't know if I don't remember if other students could go or not. And so you were in this room. And so in that room, in our junior year, Joshua and Broadway actress Sandy Dennis and my later to be wife, Cheryl, was in that room. Also. Oh, she was. I forgot Diego. that story. Cheryl had been on a the-, the same theater trip. She was a theater student in San Diego High School, and she saw. I think you did a scene because I remember Cheryl telling me she saw you do a scene. I don't remember. I think my memory is Cheryl was the one who told my ex-wife was the one who told me that you had done a scene about your scene. Just talk about funny small world stuff. Really, weird. and then we all ended up living together in the same apartment building in San Francisco, like five years later and then you ended up having sex with your wife in the same bed with me when i lived in that funny back house just to bring that my daughter my daughter's ears although maybe i won't maybe she's old enough now to to appreciate the fact that you forced us and watched (laughs) us having sex (laughs) and wanted your voyeuristic tendencies like please kenny let me watch you and your wife oh my god i was Um, it was the last thing i wanted you to be doing in my bed yeah all right let's let's not let's let's leave it there let's let the people decide but anyway so that was a small world moment of high school theater also uh, that my ex-wife was in that room when you were doing that scene. And that's, I mean, who, who could have, you can't write this stuff. You can't make this stuff up. I it think was I, my memory is, and it's very vague, but, very th- vague. but this would be very me. My memory is that Sandy Dennis was kind of critical of our scene or of our work. <laughs> and I remember, and I remember thinking like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck her. What what does she know? How many Tonys did she win? She Screw her. She doesn't know what she's talking about. That's right. That's very funny. That that could that sounds like you. I always thought I always, I was like you know I I was just I did things I I just believed that oh, doing things differently was okay. I don't have to do it. The Were way you wearing shoes? Most certainly. Most certainly. Okay. So that came later. The not wearing shoes to me. Do you want to know the weirdest thing? Listen to the weirdest thing. Speaking of what is the weirdest thing? Theater and stuff. So yesterday we went out to look at a. Yesterday, I feel like Ed McMahon and the old Johnny Carson. No, we went yesterday. We went out to (laughs) 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 look. That's right. We went out to look at this house. Anyway, we were. I I was walking around this neighborhood Mm -hmm. and I talked to one of the neighbors and just randomly talked to a neighbor. Yeah. In a COVID environment, you just knock on a neighbor's door. No, he was out. No, he was out. And I was on the sidewalk and he was like 10 feet away, whatever. But anyway, um, he asked me totally randomly, are you a musician? I said, you look, (laughs) you seem like a musician to me. Uh But here's why that's weird. Do you know how many people randomly, not Uh only randomly ask, try to guess what I do for a living? Uh Nine out of 10 people say musician. But it's so weird that people, and I don't, I don't know what it is about me that evokes that for people. But th- how many, she how, goes. how often do you just go around asking people, "Can I guess what you do? Get, let me guess what you do for a living." But this happens I to me all the often time. This happens in magic shows. This happens. It doesn't. You'll it doesn't have somebody say, "Like, magic. what do you do for a living?" Oh, right. So I think right. Exactly. Back to the magic right. show theme. Yeah, this happens to me <laughs> all the time. It's the weirdest thing. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong. Well, there's with something. The there's something wrong with me. That's for sure. But I, I. I it's just very strange. This happens to me regularly. You know what it regularly. is? It's, it's, I'll tell you what it is. 
this is actually absolute truth. Put your hands up for me to see. The audience can't see it. This is an audio podcast. Turn them the other way. Uh, men that wear more than one ring, mm. men, a man that wears more than one ring is always thought of as a musician in our culture. It's a stereotype. It's a biased thing. So the man sees you. He sees the rings, the necklace, the ear things, the, you know, all the piercings. He says, musician. That's where we go culturally. <laughs> you're that guy. What I read in the subtext of what you're saying is like, he sees all the bullshit that you've got going on. <laughs> All the all the external stuff, the veneer. It's not necessarily uh, bullshit, but it's the presentation. Mm-hmm. You present with all the jewelry and all the you know all the, the nipple piercings and all that stuff, and you <laughs> present <laughs> as a, you can see it through the t-shirt, and you present as a, a musician. That's the culture. <laughs> I mean, we live in a stereotypical culture that stereotypes people. Um, remember the music from the Shakespeare festivals, from the junior and senior Shakespeare, all that like Elizabethan sure, music. Of course, that we, I remember that the we one learned. song that we did. I did Twelfth Night in in uh, the junior shakespeare festival and i remember that i just even now all these years 40 yeah, years yeah. later it's like when that i was uh, a little boy with a hey ho the wind and the rain a foolish thing was but a toy for the rain it raineth every day how do i remember that and then that would probably be like the end of the scene and everybody would sort of lower their heads and someone uh, there was a lowering of the heads and someone would say scene <laughs> that was a very powerful moment right. but that was uh yeah that was a beautiful moment that, it's funny that i remember the jingle if you will the song all these years later and that's well i don't remember any of the dialogue by the way but i do remember that some music very powerful the way the brain takes in music right Up brings us back to john alley and his album bard fly wasn't john uh, one of the stars of greece too i don't think he was a star of greece too i think he, i think he started he in the was, opening number but he was in, in he was in greece too i um, have a memory of john alley greece too he was one of the, he was one of the stars of the musical some kind of uh, so yes we went to high school with a lot of people who became very famous children and fish was a funny show it's about kids catching fish really grabbed the attention <laughs> kept you for the whole the whole twenty two minutes children and fish it was a ABC after school special I think. Oh, a boy man. goes home. His parents are not there. Latchkey kid in the 70s. He's got nothing to do. He sees his father's old fishing pole in the corner. He thinks, I can take a bus two hours to the mountains by myself to a lake and catch that trout that my dad talked about. Bring it home and my dad will love me. Oh. In the after school special. Do you remember I did a Shalom Sesame? I did a Sesame Street. Do I remember? I, Sesame Street that was, I have the pictures. Now that you mentioned it, Hanukkah, we're going to have to use it Hanukkah, in the marketing. Hanukkah-based. Oh, those pi- Let me just pictures. point this out no, please don't. to the audience. Please don't use that picture. It's so oh, no. I'm definitely going to use it, you bastard. I'm going to point this out. Right now, Joshua's hair is like, I want to say, like an eighth of an inch above his head. It's very th- short, cut very short, very thin. Uh, in the Shalom Sesame episode, which Shalom Sesame was the Jewish version of Sesame Street, right? Yeah. I mean, it was in Shalom production of in Shalom, in Shalom Sesame. Joshua's hair is about three feet above his head. Yeah, he's got like the Jufro extraordinaire, as we used to I call it. It was like days. the Jufro from hell, I, I think. On that, yeah, I remember you were wearing a white shirt yeah. and a black tie. Yeah, well, that was that, that was a, a you, sketch where I think I was supposed to be a waiter or something. You something. were a waiter by a pool, and I yeah. think you also then, then broke into song. Uh, no, I don't think I would have agreed <laughs> to do that. I think you sang. I don't you think, sang something from Gypsy. There's something I, about the no, you were the mother and Gypsy. I don't think so. No. I don't think so. Or some Ethel Merman impression. What, what and and you G- exactly? Gypsy, by the way, I finally actually saw Gypsy and was very let down by it. I don't get it. I don't get why everybody goes on about Gypsy. I just don't. I don't think. Anywho, you are obviously very famous for your TV show, um, 
the Jew in New York who sings. I think it was, was that what it was called. Yeah, that was not what it was called. And I and I and I don't think I was ever very famous, but I, I had a, I had a moment. You had seven weeks of fame. I had seven weeks of fame. I don't even think it was six weeks of fame. I think it might have been six weeks. There yeah. were seven episodes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Right. But there, I think I had. I think I missed out on one one week of fame. Okay, and let's let's wrap up here. But I want to ask you if you remember the best line. Joshua was starting a TV show. For those of you who don't know, Josh was an actor. We were talking about it earlier, and he had he had a, a period in his twenties where he you know had a TV show, his own TV show. He was the star of a TV show on ABC. It was called The Marshall Chronicles. It just as a, a fun fact at the time, there was another show that came on at the same time on NBC called The Seinfeld Chronicles. Yeah, two shows about Jews. And the NBC people decided that they didn't want to compete with Marshall, so they took the Chronicles and dropped it, and they just called it Seinfeld. I, I think that showed. I don't know whatever happened to that show. I don't think it was on very long. Died. But anyway, so then the Marshall Chronicles was a show, and wasn't it the president of ABC Television who was Jewish himself, who when asked when asked about the show said, "Ah, it's too, too Jewish. Jewish, too Jewish." Classic line, right? The, too Jewish, right? Like in the executive producer, I remember Rich Rosenstock, brilliant saying. Um, you know, Very talented. Yeah, he says two Jews like like we were writing the episodes in Hebrew. You know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh my God, that was funny. Like we made wait, like, wait, we, uh, like was, we made Talmud jokes. You know, it was there. There were there was a bar mitzvah scene, as I recall. That's a uh, uh, oh no right. And this is, it wasn't a bar mitzvah. It's a wedding. It's a wedding. It's a wedding. Yeah. Wait, wait. Don't say anything. Uh, listen to the question before you answer. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the best line from the seven weeks of that show that was said by the band leader? In the wedding scene, sure, by the band leader. Yeah, go. Uh, the The place is posh, and we're ready to nosh. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's my favorite line. That guy, by the way. Yeah. That actor. I just literally this morning, because sometimes when I wake up before I start my day, I do that classic like morning ritual. I do the meditation, the yoga. I watch an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Mm -hmm. You know all the classic things mm -hmm. that people do in the morning. That guy was in an episode of Grey's Anatomy where he lights his face on fire in the hospital. He lights up a cigarette in all that oxygen, and his face blows up. Just just this that morning, guy. I saw him. Moish. No, I don't know what his name was. No. He's a good classic character. Yeah, character, character actor. actor. I, I've, I've blanked on his name now. But anyway, yeah. Anyway, he was very funny. The room is, my memory is, the room is posh and we're ready to nosh. Mm -hmm. just, yeah, right, right. It's a classic yeah, right. Jewish band leader line. Yeah, that was a really, really funny episode. Yeah. That was a funny scene. The, the whole thing about that was very funny. Oh, that was funny. I mean, that was great writing. That show was not appreciated in its time. No, it wasn't. Do you have one other standout moment from high school theater that just comes to you right now. I have one about you. My, all my best high school theater moments are about you. My favorite moment, mm. my favorite high school theater moment about you was in um, Fiddler on the Roof, classic for two Jewish men to be talking about mm. high school uh, Fiddler on the Roof. I, in Fiddler on the Roof, was cast as the lead Gentile, Fiedka. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, had that, that blonde hair, blue eye thing going for me in those days. And Joshua, who was not, again, not musical. Well, I wasn't musical either, but Joshua was very not musical, yep. not dead. He was cast in this tiny little part of the rabbi, which is a very small part, like five lines in the whole thing. But Josh, as as Josh was, as no, uh, would do in those days, really loved to chew up the scenery, as we like to say in the theater. He took that, like, 
two minute scene and made it last like 42 minutes. It turned out <laughs> to be the longest scene in the play. He, his, like, he delivered his lines so slowly and people in the audience, one guy died in the audience. He went on so long. He aged. He was six when his play started. He was 72 when it ended. He literally died in the audience. Do you remember the line? Yeah, yeah, of course. I say, I say, let's sit down. But you know, what's funny is, is the, you said it with a Yiddish accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's actually, I say, I didn't say it like that, but you know what? That was, kind of, Jesus that was kind of a, um, that was kind of the, the memory I was thinking about too, because I was crushed that I didn't get cast. I was called back for four different parts and I didn't get any of them. And I was really, really devastated. And it turns out that that part that I got, I, I, I really killed and, and did, and, and was really, really funny. And I remember Mr. Pressman came up to me afterward the music teacher uh-huh, and he said has anybody who was not especially he was not he was not effusive and did not i never heard him give anybody a compliment and he said has anybody told you how oh, that's f- not true he gave zena goldrich compliments okay and he said zena goldrich very talented yeah anyway he yeah. gave zena goldrich compliments. and he said has anybody told you how funny you are and i said no he said you're really that's really nice. funny so but I, so the, that stands out for me as an important moment of like huh. Interesting. You know, you could, you could, you don't, ha- you know, you don't have to be the lead to do some to do really good work. Yeah, that's a powerful moment. And I will say this: forty years later, that is the one moment of that show that stands out for me. So it was, it was pretty <laughs> powerful. Maybe it's just because it's me and you, but still, I bet you there are other people, not the guy who died, obviously, but other people who remember that moment and think, "Wow, that was a powerful moment." Yeah, but uh, and uh, I think I don't remember if we mentioned this on, the, on one of our other shows, but. The guy who played Tevi in that, Jeffrey Sonnenberg, he he, <laughs> he was uh, he was remarkable as as Tevi for a kid to be seventeen. Yeah. And, and that was his best role. And he really he was impressive. And I just want to say shout out to our our very good friend Kevin, who's very stiff in that show. <laughs> very stiff. <laughs> you know, I love Kevin. He's one of my best friends. He's, he's one of my favorite people in the world. Very stiff. <laughs> he didn't have that whole physical thing down in high school. He came to theater late. Acting, later acting than wasn't did. his thing. No, but he was very stiff. But he played Laser Wolf. Yeah. Uh, the best name of the character. In the yeah. Show. I think he was voted best name. But anyway. I got to go get my daughter. Well, mazel tov to you, my friend. A blessing on your head. Blessing on your head. Box and the Bagel is a production of Kenjamin Media, a curated series of conversations about things that matter. For more information about our podcast, please go to KenjaminMedia.com.